Well, good morning, everybody. Do you want to turn to Isaiah? Uh, if you've got a church Bible from the back, it is page 686. It's nice to see a whole bunch of faces that I recognise, but also a whole bunch of faces I don't recognise, which is very good. Uh, so for those who uh, don't know, my name is Matt. Um, I'm basically related to after church. And... Um, I now live in uh, Stockton on Tees in a place called Hardwick and I pastor a church there called Hardwick Baptist Church. I've been there for about the last seven, seven and a bit years. Uh, I'm married to Nancy who's sat over there and three of my kids, well all three of my kids have just trotted out the back. Um, when I was given the brief by Nathan um, about this, I thought, great, he's given me all of Isaiah to do in one sermon. Uh, thanks for that. Um, wherever you are, I've lost you, but there you go. Anyway, Isaiah, so we're going to look, we're not going to look at it all, you'll be glad to know, uh, because those of you who uh, know my dad, he has a reputation for speaking for a long time, I also inherited the same reputation, and therefore you might have thought, great, Matt is coming to speak, and he's got 66 chapters. Um, we're not doing 66 chapters, we're just going to do 11. Um, so if you want to look at Isaiah chapter 1 first, we'll do that. We're going to read a section of that, and then we're going to read Isaiah chapter 7. So you have to flick over a few pages. Before we do that, I'm going to pray, though, because as we come to God's Word, whenever we come to it, we need His help to understand it. So let's pray for the Spirit's help to understand the Word as we look at it together. Father, thank you that we are able to read your Word together. Thank you that it's written uh, for us and kept for us so we can learn from it, so that we can understand uh, who you are and what you're like. We pray now as we look at Isaiah chapter 1, please uh, speak to us, be gracious to us, open our eyes to see the truth, unstop our ears so we can hear what is being said and soften our hearts so that we can receive the word and be transformed by it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Isaiah chapter 1, then starting at verse 1, says the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that, the so, that Isaiah the son of Amos saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens, listen earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared up children uh, and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master and the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart is afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness. Only wounds and bruises and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. Your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty has left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We have become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices 
What are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my court? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, sabbaths and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Skip forward to Isaiah chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 1 to 17. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied himself with Ephraim, so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son Shea Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the laundress field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm and do not be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smouldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, the son of Remaliah. Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves, and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will, too be, will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Here now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will, he will be eating curds and honey. And when he knows enough to reject the right and choose, sorry, reject the wrong and choose the right. For the boy knows, for, before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. The land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any other 
since Ephraim broke away from Judah, he will bring the king of Assyria. So, when the chips are down, who do you trust? When your back's against the wall, who do you want by your side? When the battle is raging, who do you want to be standing shoulder to shoulder with you? The reality is that all of us trusts someone or something. Whether that's in good times or bad times, we all trust someone or something. And who or what we trust is then what matters. The reality of life is that everyone and everything that we can choose to trust in will ultimately let us down. Because nobody is perfect and nothing is invincible. So whether it's your friends or your family or your spouse or the government or church leaders, they're all fallible. They're all fallible. And money, job, possessions, intelligence, reputation, they're all vulnerable. Now those failures of those people or those things that we might put our trust in could mean that we become cynical. I heard someone say this week, we don't want to become the person who smells flowers and immediately looks around for a coffin. Took a while for some of you to get to that. But we can become cynical. The things we put our trust in, the people we put our trust in, when they fail us, we think, I'm not going to do that again. And so to avoid that, to avoid becoming cynical, we need to have a more foundational trust. We need to have a more anchored hope. We need something or someone that is unchanging. And the visions and messages that God gives to Isaiah, uh, they're over a period of approximately 50 years. They span the lifetime or uh, part of the lifetime age, uh, uh, of four kings. Now, most of the 66 chapters that we find in Isaiah are prophecy and poetry. So the first 35 are all about uh, God um, and what he's going to uh, do for his people or what he's going to do to his people. Uh, and there's an emphasis in them of the coming of somebody, a picture of somebody called the son of David. And then 36 to 39 are, are right in the, in the middle there, and they're a, they're a story. They're not prophecy or poetry, but a story about something that happens particularly in the life of the people of Israel, particularly in the life of the king of he called Hezekiah. And then 40 to 46, again, a more prophecy. But this time, rather than the picture being of someone in the line of David who is to come, we get this picture of um, a servant, an unnamed servant. Uh, and we get not only pictures about who this person is going to be and what he's going to be like, but then what he's going to bring. And we get a whole uh, vision of future glory and of the coming of the kingdom of God. And during this 50-year period, it's really hard to place where any of these things particularly took place or where any of those visions particularly came to Isaiah, apart from that section in the middle where it's clear that it's a particular point in history. But during the 50 years, there's a massively shifting political landscape. So Egypt had been the superpower down to the south, but their power is kind of dwindling. It's, it's, going, it's going downhill and they're being replaced by Assyria in the north. They're becoming the big power, the one to be worried about. And as Isaiah continues and, and, and beyond that, you then get Babylon, who follow in the years after. But particularly at this point in time that we're looking at in these first few chapters, the, the, the power vacuum is between 
Egypt disappearing off the scene and Assyria coming on the scene. And in Uzziah's life, the first king that Isaiah was round in, um, the lifetime of, he, he makes some small gains. He gets a bit of land back for Judah. And yes, they're still small in comparison to the nations around them. And they're still stuck in the middle, but they've had a little bit of success. That's kind of the context. That's where we're set. That's, that's what's going on around Judah and Jerusalem. We need to keep that in our heads. But the other thing we need to keep in our heads is that Isaiah, interestingly enough, uses um, a particular title for God more than anybody else uses in the Bible. In fact, it barely appears anywhere else in the rest of Scripture. But it appears 25 times in Isaiah's prophecy. And that's this. He calls the Lord the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel. Now you've got to go, okay, if Isaiah's the only one really using this term, it must be important. It must be key to what Isaiah is saying. It must be key to the questions he's going to raise, to the prophecies he's going to give. So keep that in mind as well. Keep in mind the context. Keep in mind that name, the Holy One of Israel. There's the background. You can read some more background if you've got a decent study Bible. If you've not got one, you can always buy one or borrow one. Somebody else will have one. But what we're going to do is we're going to dip into chapters 1 to 5, and then we're going to dive into chapters 7 to 11 and see what it's all about. Now, in American politics, don't switch off if you're bored by politics, but in American politics, the president delivers every year a speech that's called the State of the Union, right? Big speech, massively important. And in the opening five chapters of Isaiah are basically like the State of the Union speech for Judah. God is giving his assessment of the people, of the leaders, and of the nation of the whole, and it is absolutely brutal. I mean, we read a few verses in chapter 1. You keep reading chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. It's the same thing on repeat. Now, if you've ever seen the West Wing, the president in that is a guy called Jed Bartlett, and he delivers his State of Union speech, and while he's doing it, all his staff are watching it on the screen, and they're counting the number of standing ovations he gets, how long it lasts, the number of applause interruptions there are for his speech as he declares what's going on in America and what his plans are for them. If they'd been watching this speech, they wouldn't have been counting anything like that. Because the Lord's assessment of Judah and their situation and the people is a damning one. He pulls no punches. He lays their sin bare for all to see. He calls them to account and leaves them with absolutely nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. Beginning of chapter 1 is the bottom line. They are a rebellious people. They don't want anything to do with God. And it's not just in their outward actions. They've not just made a few mistakes here and there. They've got a serious heart problem. And then he goes into some more specifics and he says, look, you look all religious. You look like you should be my people. You're doing some of the things I've commanded you to do, but you might as well not bother. You might as well not bother because... You're just going through the motions. Your heart's not in it. You don't care about me. You're just ticking some boxes. And the Lord says, look, I'm sick of it. In fact, I'm not just sick of it. I hate it, and I'm not going to listen anymore. Why? 
Because although the people are doing all of these things, although they're rocking up to church on a Sunday morning, although they're saying some prayers, although their mouth is opening and they're singing some songs, they lack justice. And they lack compassion for the poor and for the outcast and for the widows and for the orphans. They look good, but they don't practice any righteousness. And then by chapter 2, it's like the people have gone to Woolworths for pick and mix. Remember Woolworths pick and mix? There's a bunch of people in here who won't remember Woolworths pick and mix, which is ridiculous. But if you remember Woolworths pick and mix, that's what the people of Israel have gone and done. They've gone to the pick and mix, but instead of picking up fizzy cola bottles and cherry lips, they've picked up idols of gold and wood and stone and superstition. And they've added that into their worship bag. And then in chapter 5, there's the famous picture of the vineyard. Israel, God's vineyard, looked after by God, protected by God, given everything by God in order to flourish, and yet there is no grapes. It is a fruitless vineyard because they're trusting in the wrong things. That's the state of the people of Israel and Judah and Jerusalem. Now, we aren't Old Testament Israel, right? We aren't Old Testament Israel, but as human beings, we are very much like them. And so the question would be, at this point, before we get into the rest of it, is what would God's assessment of our church be like? Do we sit guilty as charged, like the people of Israel, of putting on a good show, of going along to church, of singing the songs, of even serving in some way, but having hearts that are elsewhere? Are we in the same boat of Judah and Jerusalem, lacking in the fruit of righteousness, lacking in compassion, lacking in justice? Have we gone to the pick and mix? Obviously, we don't have little wooden statues in our living rooms, right? But how many times has our phone stopped us from listening in a sermon? How many times have the activities of our children been the reason we've not come to something that's on a church? How many times is the busyness or the, uh, the rigid nature of the routine we like to keep stopped us from investing in our non-Christian friends or in a new person who's come to church who might be in need? See, if we want to know where the idols are in our lives, and we've all got them, we've all got them, we need to look at a couple of things in particular. One, where does your money go? And two, where does your time go? follow those two traces, you'll find the things that are the idols in your life. Or if you think, well, I haven't got much money and I haven't got much time. Well, that's probably part of the problem. But um, ask these questions. What thing, if it was taken away today, would make you feel like life wasn't worth living? What things make you most frustrated and angry? What would you fill the blank of this sentence with? If only I had, life would be good. That's what you're living for. That's where the idols lie. See, it's really easy to look at Judah and Jerusalem in the first two chapters, well, first five chapters, and shake our heads. Think, well, we wouldn't be so foolish. It's easy to think, well, idolatry is just a thing of the past. It's what primitive groups used to do carve things out of wood and stone, cast them out of gold and silver. 
But when we think like that, we reveal that we do not understand the human heart. Not in the way the Bible describes it. And so here's the big question. If this is the state of God's people in chapters 1 to 5, and Isaiah repeatedly calls the Lord the Holy One of Israel, the question is this. How can these people, how can people like this coexist with the Holy One of Israel? Because it's a big problem, isn't it? The description of the people and the description of God are poles apart. They're at opposite ends of the spectrum. How on earth can this people be forgiven? How on this earth can this people be returned to a right relationship with this holy God? How can there be any reconciliation? Because as it stands, they're in trouble. Now, I've been slightly selective in chapters 1 to 5 because there are some hints of hope. We heard one of them read earlier. Chapter 1, verse 18. There's a bit of hope at the beginning of 2 and partway through chapter 4. But the big picture is that the people are in trouble. But as the book of Isaiah goes, and if you've got time, go and read through the whole thing. As the book of Isaiah goes, the hints of hope that are there at the beginning get bigger. And they become fleshed out. And actually, they become literally fleshed out. Now, chapter 6 is kind of the break between the intro and the condemning uh, speech of the Lord about the people. And Isaiah 6, which we don't have time to look at at all, which is a shame, is where Isaiah sees the Lord in heaven. He is stunned by the holiness of God, sees his own uncleanness, and then is commissioned by God to speak to the people. But what a brutal commission he gets. The Lord says, go and preach to these people, but they're not going to listen. Lord says to Isaiah, you might as well bang your head against a brick wall because your words are going to fall on deaf ears, they're going to land on hard hearts, and the people aren't going to listen. I mean, if I was Isaiah, I'd be thinking, oh, please, no, are you kidding me? He's going to need an infinite capacity for disappointment, Isaiah, isn't he? Because every time he opens his gob, he's going to get an outback. He's going to need incredible perseverance. At least if I get up into the pulpit, I can pray for the Spirit to take the word and bring fruit in the lives of the people in front of me. But I've never been told by God that nobody's going to listen. Although, I don't know, we'll have to wait and see, won't we? At least I can hope that some people will be changed and the word of the Lord won't return empty-handed. But poor Isaiah, even before he gets up for the first time, nobody's going to listen. And that's what happens in chapter 7. We go now have jumped forward from the reign of Uzziah to the reign of Ahaz, one of the kings of Judah. And Isaiah goes with his son, Shea Jashub, to Ahaz, and he challenges King Ahaz to make a decision. And it's not a complicated one. Ahaz faces a problem. He can either, he's got three choices, he can make an alliance with Aram and Israel, because remember, Judah and Israel split by this point. He can either make an alliance with them and hope that together they can resist the Assyrian army or he can make an alliance with Assyria and say, I'm going to hedge me bets on they're the superpower. If I stick with them, they'll look after me and maybe they'll get rid of the other two in the process. Or he can keep faith with the Lord, the one who's speaking to him through Isaiah. He has his choice. Coming back to what we said at the beginning, 
We all trust someone or something. He has his choices. Who's he going to trust? Aram and Israel, Assyria, or the Lord? Will he trust the Almighty, or will he trust the might of men? And Isaiah says to him, look, don't worry about Israel and Aram. Don't worry about these other two kings. They're spent forces. They're like smoldering wood. He has says, stick with the Lord. He's telling you, you won't be destroyed. You won't be replaced. He's going to look after you. But if you don't listen, which is the end of verse 9, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. The Lord's gracious to Ahaz here. The Lord knows that Ahaz is worried. He knows that he is feeling vulnerable, surrounded by these mighty nations. And he shows him grace. And even more than that, he then says to him in verse 10, even though the word of the Lord that says, you aren't going to be destroyed by these two nations, but has made him that promise, he then says to him, look, just so you can be sure, ask me for a sign. Ask for anything in heaven and earth. And you'll get it. Now Ahaz, when we read his reply, sounds quite godly, doesn't he? Verse 12. I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Oh, here you go. Ahaz, sounding very, uh, you know, upright there. Wrong. He's not. At all. What he's actually doing is failing to stand up and trust the Lord. He's rejecting the offer of grace. Ahab, all he do, Ahaz, sorry, by, by rejecting this offer of God for a sign, all he's doing is saying, I don't really want to believe that the Lord's going to deliver me. I don't really want to believe that the Lord's going to deliver me. I'd rather trust in what I can see. And I can see Assyria and they look strong. So I'll trust in them instead. Again, who are we going to trust? Who are we going to trust? Are we going to trust in worldly wisdom and strength? Or are we going to trust in the Lord's? Life is hard, isn't it? It is hard for all sorts of reasons. We face tough circumstances at work and at school and in society. We even face tough circumstances with our friends. You might be at work and you might get asked by your line manager to put a fake report in. And if you don't do it, it'll block your promotion and make your life miserable. Worldly wisdom says, I'll just put the fake report in. Nobody's ever going to know. It's not that bad in the grand scheme of things, is it? Or at school, you might hear gossip or rumours spread, and you think, I better spread this rumour. I better stick with this gossip. I better add to it. Otherwise, I'll not be with the in crowd. And worldly wisdom says, that's okay. You didn't start the rumour. And you don't want to be bullied, do you, for not doing it? We could buy into the world's big thing about having more me time. Having more self-expression. That's the way to happiness. But are any of those ways the ways of the Lord? Are any of those ways in line with what his word teaches? See, there's a million and one ways you could try and manipulate situations to your advantage. There are a million and one ways we could take revenge against someone else or expect the government to uphold our rights. Or we could trust in the sovereign and good God, and know that he's with us, and know that he's faithful and just, and know that ultimately he will keep his people and build his church. We have a choice. Who are we going to trust? Ahaz makes the choice to trust Assyria. 
and there's consequences for him and for the people. Yes, the kings of Aram and Israel won't defeat Ahaz because the Lord said they wouldn't. But he's going to send Assyria. And Assyria initially are going to help him because they are going to defeat Ephraim and Aram. They're going to wipe out these other two nations. But they're going to stab Ahaz in the back after that. The Lord is going to use them to swarm into Judah and Jerusalem. You can read about that if you read through the rest of chapter 7 and into chapter 8. And Ahaz is failing to trust the Lord. It spells disaster for the line of kings that follow him. In fact, the only reason that Assyria don't wipe out Judah and Jerusalem as well is because of Hezekiah in chapters 36 to 39. Go away and read that later on. Now, what we can see in context of this little story is that we need to accept the sign of salvation or face judgment. That's what Ahaz has a choice of. And because he refuses to accept the sign of salvation, he faces judgment. And yet the sign still comes, but this time it's not a sign of invitation for Ahaz, it's a sign of prediction. It's no longer a sign of encouragement for Ahaz, but evidence that the Lord is displeased with him. Look at verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And the key is in that name and in that title, which we'll get to in a second. But there's also important names in there for Isaiah and his sons. Isaiah's name wonderfully means Yahweh saves. So even at the outset when we think, how can this rebellious people be brought to know this holy God? The answer's in Isaiah's name. There's also a pointer that things are going to get better later in Isaiah's first son, because Shia Jashub means a remnant will return. But there's also a warning in Isaiah's second son, who's born in the next chapter. I mean, this is a crazy name. But he's called Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which means speed, spoil, haste, plunder. There's going to be a judgment, right? The problem is still there. Rebellious people who refuse to trust the Lord will face his judgment because he is holy and we are not. So can the problem be solved? Humanly speaking, no. Humanly speaking, Judah and Jerusalem are hopeless. Humanly speaking, you and I are hopeless. There is no hope until we see the sign. The title Emmanuel in the sign means God with us. Through Isaiah, the Lord is saying he's He's going to be the one who will bring salvation and hope. See, there is only any hope if the Holy One moves towards the unholy people. The unholy people can't move towards the Holy God. And after you read through chapters 8 and 10, where you get more descriptions of judgment, sandwiched in there, 7, 9 and 11, you get this description that begins to build of the person who's going to come. So, chapter 7, 14, it's Emmanuel. It's God with us. Chapter 9, and again, we could have spent all morning on chapter 9, but we're not. 2 to 7, there is a child will be born, a son will be given, and what a son he'll be. 
He will be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Again, a divine person here. More information added to the fact that he'll be God with us. He'll be a child, but he'll be full of wisdom. He'll be a baby, but he'll be the Lord himself. He'll be a human being, but he'll be the eternal protector. He'll be a ruler, and yet he will bring true peace. He will be the king who will rule from David's line in righteousness and justice, the things that the people have been lacking. And then in Isaiah 11, we find that this this same person is going to be the root and the shoot of Jesse. This means that he's not just going to be a king in the line that came from Jesse, because to be the shoot of Jesse, he has to be David. But he can't be David because David's dead. So he's got to be the true David. He's got to be the better David. And look what it says in chapter 11, verses 2 to 3. Look what he'll have. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of of the Lord. So the identity of this child who will be born, of this son, of this baby, just keeps getting bigger and clearer. And it's in him, then, that we find the answer to who we should trust. It's in him, then, that we find the answer to how the sinful people can have hope in the face of a holy God. The answer is Jesus. Matthew 1.23 says, He is Emmanuel, born of the Virgin, God with us. And so this God comes down and gets involved in our mess, in our sin, in our shame, in our filthy rags. God comes to us. He enters our world and lives righteously. Isaiah 32 would tell you that was going to happen too. He enters our world and is crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah 53 will tell you the servant will do. He enters our world and says, Come to me, all who you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He lives and breathes the compassion of Isaiah 55. And then he preaches the good news to Jew and Gentile, which is what Isaiah 56 and Isaiah 63 would tell you would happen. We can't approach a holy God. It's just not possible. But he comes to us and deals with us in our sin and invites us to know him. Which comes back to chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They are red as crimson. They shall be like wool. But listen carefully to what that's saying. It's not saying, come and have a barter with God. God's not saying, okay, let's sit down and work it out. You tell me what you can put on the table. I'll tell you what I can put on the table and we'll find a a compromise in the middle. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, come to me if you want to be washed clean. Come to me and trust in the only one who can save you. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, there is an urgent message here for you. The question is, do you realize that you are in the dire spiritual need that the people of Israel were in? 
that the people of Judah and Jerusalem were in. You might have got everything in worldly terms. You might have the money you want, the house you want, the family you want, the job you want. You might have a good laugh on a weekend. But none of that matters if you stand guilty before the Lord of heaven and earth. If you stand guilty before the Holy One. Because to reject the grace of God is to reject the God of grace. And in rejecting him, we then rightly deserve judgment from him. And so if we haven't turned from sin and trusted in the God of grace, then we're still in rebellion and we still face judgment. But Jesus has come. He entered our world and stood in our place and offered forgiveness to all who would believe. And so he knows your weakness. He he knows your need and he understands you better than you understand yourself. And when Jesus sees you, he doesn't look on you in judgment, but he looks on you with compassion. Because he wants you to come and know him because he knows what's best for you but he also won't force you to do that. So you can keep going your own way if you want to, but he has given you fair warning of how that will end. And so the question then lies for you if you're not a Christian is this, will you take Jesus at his word? Will you take God at his word that there is a way, there is a way of salvation, but you need to come to Jesus for it? And if you are a Christian, which I imagine most of us are, then this Christmas, I know Christmas, fancy mentioning Christmas in November, shocking. This Christmas, are we going to look to Emmanuel, God with us, lying in the manger? See plenty of pictures of nativity scene, you'll sing plenty of Christmas carols, but often in that it becomes so familiar that the, the awesome wonder is lost. Remember, it's the infinite one who enters time and space. As a mathematician, that just doesn't work. But it works because he's God. This Christmas, when we see the baby lying in the manger, we can know that we can trust in him. Above and beyond anything else that might vie for our attention and our loyalty. This Christmas, we can come to the wonderful counselor, the one whose ways are higher than ours, that are better than ours, and we can come to him and find wisdom and help in all the trials that we face. This Christmas, we can come to the mighty God who made us and yet became weak and vulnerable because he loves us. This Christmas, we can enjoy the everlasting Father, the one who cares for and protects his people who is the perfect king and yet humbled himself, allowing himself to be beaten and bruised and killed on a cruel cross so that we could be rescued. This Christmas we can rest in the Prince of Peace who fought the battle against sin and death and Satan, who can truly bring us into God's family, the one place where we can find rest and satisfaction. This Christmas, remember, there is no one like him. No one like Emmanuel. No one could compare to him. Not anything you could imagine could be better than him. So either come and bow the knee for him to the first time or come and worship him. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for what is written in your word. We thank you that there is so much in there. Thank you that you choose to reveal yourself to us through it. Father, we do ask for your spirit to take that word and bring about change in our hearts and minds. Lord, where we need to confess our sin and come running to you, help us to do that. Where, Lord, you might want to save, we pray, Father, that we would be listening, listening to that message of grace, that message of hope that comes only through the Lord, only through Jesus. Father, whatever work you want to do in us, do what we pray because you are good. Do what we pray because we need it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, we've got one song to close in response.